Acts chapter 20 is where we are going to be this morning. And as you guys make your way to the 20th chapter of Acts, let me just remind you that in chapter 19, where we saw the Apostle Paul, was, uh, he was having what I call a not-so-quiet riot. They were having a riot there in the theater in Ephesus. They were crying out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! All because Paul was hurting them financially in their trade. And so the group there in Ephesians of silversmiths were having an uprising. And we found ourselves, just like we are today, in the middle of this third missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. He is going around planting churches, encouraging churches that have already been planted. But in the chapter last week, we saw that Paul expressed a desire to leave and to go to Jerusalem. He told them he wanted to get back in time for the feast. So for a Jewish male, there were really three major feasts that they loved to celebrate. Uh, the Passover, which was the first feast of the Feast of Pentecost, and then the Feast of Tabernacles. Those were the big three for the uh, Jewish men in that day and time, even still are to this day. So the feast, though, that he would have referred to would have been the Feast of Passover. This was their Super Bowl. This is coming off of this season for us. So he was desiring to go back to Jerusalem for their, well, you could call it their Juper Bowl. They were excited about this big feast that was to take place. So from here, Paul is intending to leave from Ephesus and make his way towards Jerusalem when we pick up in chapter 20, verse 1. And we read that after the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. So Paul, desiring to head to Jerusalem, he gives the disciples a good hug from Ephesus, and then he heads towards Macedonia. Now, I didn't put a map up there uh, for you on the screen because I didn't want to bore you with maps, those of you that don't care for geography. But uh, what you would find if you looked at the map, maybe there's one in the back of your Bible, is that uh, Macedonia is not on the way to Jerusalem. Not even close. It's, in fact, the polar opposite direction. So Paul's desiring to go. Apparently, he doesn't have a Google phone. He's not able to tell that this is the opposite direction. But what we are going to find today is he goes in this direction, this route, to encourage young believers, to encourage these young churches that he has planted. And they planted a church there in Philippi, which is located in Macedonia. The second reason for Paul to go this direction is he is also taking up an offering. The church in Jerusalem is struggling mightily financially. There's a famine going on in the land of Judea at this time. And so the church has got major struggles. So Paul is going this direction to not only encourage people, but to also give them the opportunity to give back to the church in Jerusalem. Now verse 2. Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed there Three months. And so Paul leaves from Macedonia, this area of Philippi. He sails south to Greece, and in particular to the city of Corinth. And we're told there, as Paul arrives in Corinth, he stays for three months. And what you'll find is that historically, uh, Paul writes the letter to the Romans while he stays these three months in Corinth. And so in this place, this city that is known as the Las Vegas of the ancient world. I mean, it is a wicked, uh, evil city. And Paul was continually, in his letters, exhorting these guys. That's strong encouragement. He's trying to help them with the sin issues in the church. But nevertheless, they were a wealthy church. But also what we find is that what Paul says in Romans is that where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And he's able to write this amazing letter, perhaps his uh, most impactful or most perfect or most complete letter in all the New Testament to the Romans while he's in this sinful city in Corinth. 
So he's inspired while he's there. And at the end of verse 3, we see that the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria. And he decided to return to Macedonia. And so Paul's getting ready to leave from Corinth. He to set sail for Syria. This is where Antioch was located. But before he goes, he hears a rumor that the Holy Spirit tips him off that the Jews are lying in wait. They're going to try to trap Paul. They're after him. And so Paul once again has these plans. He knows exactly where he's going to go, his next route, where it's going to take him. And yet the Lord is directing his steps. And so he averts a disaster here in Corinth when the Holy Spirit tips him off. Verse 4, And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and uh, Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derb, and Timothy and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. Uh, these men going ahead waited for us at Troas. And so a little sidebar again, you notice the uh, tense has changed in the book. He is now the writer giving us us's and we's. In Troas, they pick uh, Dr. Luke back up again. And so we go from the third person back to the first person. So for you Bible students, you already caught that. Good job, A+. Plus. Uh, but what we also see is Paul's now assembling an entourage. He is assembling a group of disciples to go with him for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, for protection. Paul just uncovered a plot to attack him there in Jerusalem. And so he has this entourage for protection. They're carrying large sums of money. They're going to be taking and offerings from these churches back to Jerusalem. So they'd have an additional target on their back, but then also for accountability. When we deal with the Lord's finances, it's always good to have accountability in this setting. And so Paul's now got accountability with large sums of money and protection with these gentlemen just mentioned. And in verse 6, but we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. And so leaving from Philippi there in Macedonia, they sailed to, uh, excuse me, going back to Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. They were joined in Troas, and then they set sail. And what you find if you go through Scripture is uh, this trip, this journey that Paul set sail on that took him five days that we just read, uh, if you go to Acts chapter 16, this same trip only took him a day, Acts chapter 16. And so as I was reading through that, something that came to mind is, uh, isn't it amazing that some seasons in our life, we are incredibly productive? There are things that we set out to do that we're able to do just like that. I mean, almost like it's nothing. It only took a day. And yet there are other seasons where it takes much, much longer to get things done. It, this feels that way every time I go to do something in my house. It takes five days to accomplish something that should only take a day. And this can oftentimes bring uh, frustration. And yet, notice with me, the Holy Spirit doesn't say Paul didn't get a lot of reason or Paul wasn't being as productive with his time as what he should be. And so I want to encourage you that uh, some seasons we are going to be more productive than others. But the key to this is, keep sailing. Keep on keeping on. That's the, the real thing we can take from this. Paul kept on sailing, even though it took him far longer than it did just a few chapters prior. Now, verse 7, now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together, so they come together on Sunday, the first day of the week, to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room, and where they were gathered together. And in the window, a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep, he was overcome by sleep, 
And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. That's what you call a showstopper. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. And now when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten, and talked a long while until daylight, he departed. And they brought the young man in alive and were not a little comforted. Whew. That's some kind of story. Now that one's one of those, it's a lot like last week when the uh, demon-possessed man uh, beat seven sons of Sceva. Like, what in the that? A few things, though, to take away. Uh, one, if I happen to go long on a message, you can take great comfort that I have never, ever gone until midnight. At no point in time. So you guys have been spared a tremendous amount. But the Apostle Paul, this guy knew how to teach the Bible. He started on Sunday morning, and the dude went all the way until midnight, which reminds me of a saying my pastor uses often. He says, I am often long and never winded. The Apostle Paul was often long. He didn't get winded at all. He just kept the pedal down so much so that here's Eutychus. He's getting a little tired. He's at the back of the room, and the dude falls asleep out a third-story window and uh, lands on the ground and dies. Now, what I find just as amazing about this story is Paul goes down, he lays on the guy, the guy's brought back to life, and what Paul does, he has a snack. They break bread, eat dinner together, and Paul goes right back to teaching the Bible. That didn't even, even a dude dying in the middle of a service didn't slow him down. And so I'm encouraged by a few things. One, I've never put any of you to the sleep to the point where you fell over dead. So I'm feeling really good about that. Uh, and I'm encouraged that even if that does happen, I don't have to stop teaching the Bible. I'm just going to keep right on going. So I'm encouraged by that. All right, joking aside, a few things to take out of this uh, seemingly difficult <laughs> message to grab a hold of is this. I had a Eutychus season. Have you ever had a season in your life where uh, you started off really strong? Maybe the Bible study was impactful and you were on the front row taking notes. And then as time went on, uh, you moved farther and further to the back. Further to the back and, and maybe the note taking slows down to the point where you got to open a window to get a little fresh air in here. And then the next thing you know, uh, you're, you're spiritually drowsy. You're completely wiped out. The things that were so joyful aren't joyful any longer to the point where you're, you're off the ledge. You're, you're, you've fallen off the wall. Maybe that's been you in a season of your life. Maybe uh, that's you here today. Maybe this is someone you love and care about. What in the world are we to do uh, in this season? What are we to do? How are we to minister to someone? Or how can we be ministered to? And I want to encourage you by how Paul handled this. Notice what he did. He went down and he laid right on the guy, life on life. He got right there up in this guy's grill. I mean, he was, he was there when that mess was taking place. And I think oftentimes uh, we know that when we see someone spiritually struggling, uh, they seem to be uh, dead in our lives. We know that internally. If I got involved, I think I could maybe be life on life with them. And yet so many times we don't because it's messy. <laughs> Do you really want to get involved in this scene? Do you really want to get involved uh, in this and so I want to encourage you guys, when you come across someone who is spiritually struggling, they're drowsy, they've fallen off a bit, maybe they're completely off the ledge, uh, do just what Paul did. Uh, get right up in their business, not to give them the what for, but to be life on life with them. To encourage, to come alongside, to see life brought back to them so you can go back to a right relationship, breaking bread with these people. Now, 
why in the world would we do this, right? Why would we get involved in a situation where it would be just as easy to walk away? Uh, I'm going to go to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 5. I think Paul gives us a compelling reason. In fact, the only reason we need, and that is in verse 14, for the love of Christ compels us. Because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. The love of Christ. Why should we get involved in someone's life? Why should we be life on life with a person, even if it's messy, even if it's difficult, because the love of Christ. He loved you so much, he laid his life down for you. He laid his life down for me. And so to get involved is to be Jesus with skin on in that situation. It's to see people resurrected, to be brought back to life. And so we see that happening in a very practical here for the Apostle Paul. Now then, verse 13, Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Azos, and there intending to take Paul on board, for he had given orders intending himself to go on foot. And when he met us at Azos, we took him on board and came to uh, Mit, whatever that word is. Uh, we sailed from there, and the next day came opposite uh, Chios. And the following day we arrived at Samos and stayed at uh, Trogelium, I think. The next day we came to Miletus, I can pronounce that one. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus for that he would not have to spend time in Asia for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So, in this section, what we see is Paul sends the disciples on ahead. He sends them on ahead, sailing while he walks. I think a possible reason Paul did this is to have a little time, to just have some time to spend with Jesus. And by the way, we all need a little bit of time, a little self-care, a little time with our Heavenly Father to spend time in prayer. Prayer, by the way, doesn't have to be... uh, Hands clasped, head down, eyes closed in the prayer position you learned in Sunday school. It can be anywhere you're at. In fact, oftentimes I would encourage people that uh, if you're walking around, we've got beds to walk in, use that as a time for prayer. Just spend time with him. This is what Paul most likely did. He's walking around with Jesus. He's talking to him about what all is taking place in the season to come. The next thing to note is that as Paul joins back up with them, he doesn't want to go to Ephesus because... Well, he knows a lot of people in Ephesus. He says, if I end up there, I'm going to get held up. I can't stop in Ephesus without seeing all my friends. And so he bypasses Ephesus, and and he's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. But remember what Paul was really wanting to do when we started the message off this morning. He was looking to go to Jerusalem for the day of Passover, not Pentecost. Pentecost took place 50 days after Passover the Lord changed his direction. He changed his route. He intercepted him to avoid disaster. And what we see here with the life of the Apostle Paul is that he was not afraid to be flexible. One of my favorite Chuck Smith quotes that he ever said was, Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. This plays out true in our life too. We can be so rigid in rules and regulations and this is the only way that you can get to Jesus or this is the way this must be done or in my life I can be sitting in the driveway frustrated because we have to get somewhere. This is what has to happen so much so that I end up breaking in the process. 
This is what rigidity does, frustration and disappointment. But here we see Paul is flexible. He knows he's not going to make it for Passover, but I'd love to go for Pentecost. What a great time we'll have when we get to Jerusalem. Now, verse 17, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And so Paul, not wanting to go to Ephesus because he doesn't want to get held up and miss Pentecost also, he'd have to wait a really long time before the Feast of Tabernacles. That isn't until the fall. And so he knows, I want to get to Jerusalem. I don't want to go to Ephesus and get held up. Instead, he calls, though, for these Ephesian leaders, these elders in Ephesus, and asks them to come to him. And so he puts a call into these guys and says, hey, I'm in Miletus. Come and let's sit down and let's talk together. Because Paul knows, and we're going to see it here in a few minutes, is uh, this is going to be my last time to encourage these guys. This is going to be my last time to come through. Now in verse 18, and when they had come to him. That's where I want to stop for a second. So here Paul calls on these guys, and what they did was uh, they came. They stopped and dropped what they were doing because Paul asked them to. They had things in a proper priority, and it wasn't because they weren't busy. I think lots of times when we read through our New Testament account, we have in our minds that these guys are just waiting on Jesus to call. When he's going to call me, I'm just sitting around pining away. Uh, These guys had lives. They were busy. They were probably leaders in their community. This is what God does, too. When he raises up leaders, he usually calls people who are already leading in an area. They're they're considered to be faithful because they're already leading well. And so for these guys, they would have had families and jobs and things going on. And yet when uh, Paul called them, they made themselves available, which is why one of the greatest abilities we can have as a Christian is availability. You may not be a gifted teacher. You may not feel good as an evangelist all the time, but you can make yourself available to him. And you'll be amazed if you make yourself available how God will use you. If you just simply make yourself available in a situation, watch and see what God will do in the spot that you're in. And yet oftentimes we have excuses, right? We, we have uh, priorities. And I love this because especially for Christians in America, if you ask what our priorities are, my priorities are God and then my family, and then work. And yet, the first thing that happens when we've got overtime going on is, well, sorry, I can't make it to church this week. <laughs> like, is that, is that really your priorities? Because, I mean, it doesn't seem that way. It doesn't mean that we don't have things that come up, but the reality is, uh, so often we say these are priorities, and yet our life doesn't play out in that way. And, and the truth is, about this Christian walk, this is a battle that we're in. We are in a battle for people's lives. Lots of times, our own family. We are in the trenches. And what uh, the spot I wanted to take in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 20. I know you guys love it when we go to Deuteronomy. We get you a little time in the Pentateuch today. Deuteronomy chapter 20. This is a, a word that the Lord gives to Moses as they're getting ready to prepare for battle. They're getting ready to go out and, and go to war. And verse 4, the first thing the Lord tells them is he says, Hear, O Israel, do not uh, be afraid. Today you're on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid and do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies and to save you. What a beautiful thing the Lord is saying. When you're getting ready to go into that battle, when you're getting ready to go into that job place where you know this is going to be warfare, the Lord is saying, I'm with you. I'm already there. I'm ahead of you. 
But then he goes on to give them a couple of things to consider. Before you go into battle, he says in verse 5, If any of you are lined up here for battle, the officers speak to them and say, What man is there who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go home. And so if you've got a home that you've just built, and you're going to worry about your house instead of being all in to what God's up to in this battle, just go on home. We don't need you to go to battle today. Just go home. second thing he mentions in verse 6 is if any of you has planted a vineyard, if you've gone out and planted a vineyard but you haven't got the opportunity to taste of the fruit, the grapes of what you've planted, it takes years for a vineyard to grow, right? So if you haven't tasted it, just stay home. If that's going to be on your mind, just stay home. We don't need you in this battle. Thirdly, he says in verse Seven, if any of you is betrothed or engaged to marry a woman, yet you have not married your wife, and you're going to have that on your mind. If you're going to worry about your family, just go on home. We don't need you to go. Now, it is interesting. He doesn't say if any of you have been married 30 years, you need to go home. Sorry. It's a little, I'm going to get in trouble for that one. All right. He says if you're newly married, you can go on home. Uh, the second, the fourth thing he says, excuse me, he says to them in verse 8, if any of you is fearful or faint-hearted, let him return to his house. And so the fourth group is, if there are any, and this is the Brock Ashley version, if there are if any of you fraidy cats, if any of you are a little bit scared, a little fraidy, you can go on home as well. And so the Lord gives them the ability to actually opt out of the battle because he wants people who are all in, fully trusting that he's got your best interest in mind. And when you look at these categories, what is he really saying? He's saying, if you are fearful of losing your possessions, if you're fearful of losing your job, fearful of losing your family, or if you are fearful of losing your own life, the Lord doesn't want you to go into battle. Because what his word says, and Jesus says this in Matthew 6, verse 33, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all the other things will be added to you. When so many times we get our priorities completely out of whack, and the truth is, uh, what you fear is what you worship. And so if you fear these things, they become worshipful over God the Father. And what God says is, do you trust me enough to know that I'm going to take care of all this stuff for you? If you do, then you're ready for battle, and I'm going to go before you. Now, these men, they come to battle. They're ready to go and meet with Paul and get instruction at the end of verse 18. And Paul says to them, You know that from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you. So Paul reminds them immediately of, of his integrity. He says, Since the first day I came from you, regardless of what was going on, I was a man of integrity. I did what was right by the Lord. I was the same guy, regardless of the season that I was in. And for us as Christians, this is uh, so valuable to understand that we're all going to be in different seasons at different times. Unfortunately, we're not evergreen trees. It'd be nice if we always look great all the time, but uh, the reality is we're deciduous trees. And so for us, there's going to be a season and then a spring to come and a summer and a fall. And we're going to all be hopefully in different spots at different times. We don't want to all lose our leaves at the same time, uh, but we're all going to be experiencing different seasons. But what Paul's saying here is that regardless of the season I was in, you know that I operated with integrity. Now, verse 19, he says, In serving the Lord with all humility and with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. And so as Paul was uh, handling himself with integrity, regardless of the season, he was also quick to serve the Lord first rather than people. 
That's what verse 19 is saying. I was serving the Lord with all humility. And when we begin to shift our focus from serving the Lord to serving man, Solomon says that's a snare in Proverbs 29, 25. It's a trap. That when we serve a mankind instead of the Lord, we are setting ourselves up for failure because, uh, man, we are a fickle bunch. We change our mind all the time. It's an approval you will never be able to receive. But instead, in humility is what Paul calls us to deal. And in fact, as we operate in humility, what we see is we actually take on the mind of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. And so when we desire to take on the mind of Christ, what we do is we take on a mind that is not thinking of ourselves, but thinking of others first, and that is humbling. And regardless of what season we're in, we can operate like that. So the other piece that I want to mention here is that Paul comments about uh, the Jews that are plotting against him, and I think when we begin to think about our past, how quickly we can realize what God has saved us from. When we think about who we were prior to Christ, and this is no doubt what Paul's considering, because what are these Jews plotting to do but to take him and to have him put on trial and killed uh, the exact same thing Paul was doing to Christians when he was called Saul of Tarsus. It's so easy to stay humble when we remember what all Christ saved us from rescued us from and so Paul's in this spot he's serving the Lord with humility and verse 20 how I kept nothing back that was helpful but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house and so Paul says I gave it everything I had I, I didn't hold anything back whatever knowledge the Lord gave me I passed on to you so if at any point in time by the way you think I have any more knowledge in my head I probably just spewed it all out there before you so if you're like, I don't know, did he think about that? The answer is probably I didn't think about that. Otherwise, I would have shared it. Uh, but you probably thought about it because you're way uh, smarter and more spiritual than me. So needless to say, Paul says, I, everything I have, I, I talked to you about everything I knew, and I did this, I think this is fascinating, from house to house. In the marketplace and in the houses, everywhere I went, I was sharing the gospel. Christ and him crucified, I shared everywhere I went from person to person. And what a great example when we see the life of Christ. If you watch what Jesus did in his ministry, he went from house to house, right? He went from well to well. He went from demoniac to demoniac, person to person, from little men up in trees that he said, I'm going to your house today. He, he experienced this. He showed us this as an example of life upon life. Now, verse 21, in testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. What was his message? It was simple. It was repent to God. That's a turning away from sin and have faith in Jesus. It's just that simple of a message. Paul didn't spend his time talking about every single sin issue like I talked about last week, going around playing whack-a-mole with every single thing that pops up in every area, but instead he turned people back to Jesus Christ in faith in him. And that's what we're called to do. We are called to turn people back towards Jesus, to point people back to him, to point people his goodness. What Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, is it's the goodness of God that calls a man to repentance. It's not getting 
beaten down and reminded of every single sin issue I have. I know all about my sin. It's my sin. I should know about it more than anybody. But it's showing people the goodness of God. This is where God is good in these areas. And Romans 5.8 says that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. You see? This is the reminder of the goodness of God. It's undeniable. When we begin to understand that he loved us so much, he gave his life even while I was in my sinful mess, that's a goodness you can't deny. That's a goodness that has to be recognized. And so this is what Paul is sharing. Now, verse 22, And see now, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying the chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul, I love it, he, gets, he actually is warned by the Holy Spirit what's going to happen. The Holy Spirit gives him a heads up, Paul, uh, this is not going to be an easy road. Chains ahead of you, and yet, Here's the thing, uh, Paul goes anyway. Why would he go to Jerusalem? Why would he do that? Well, because Paul did not count his life on this earth as more valuable than an eternal life in heaven. He was not worried about his life right here. Jesus says in Matthew 16 that if you're to follow him, we're to take up our cross and to follow him, to deny ourself. And there's a difference between denial of self and self-denial. That self-denial looks like, um, I'd like to lose a few LBs, and so I'm going to quit eating carbs. And so I'm going to intentionally practice self-denial so that I can have an end goal of losing some weight. It's a tremendous thing to have self-denial. Clearly, I don't have any self-denial. But if I did, it'd be wonderful for me physically. But it's different than denial of self. Denial of self is never even considering a possible outcome for me so that I can love on and for others. And it's very difficult to live in that place. But Paul was in this spot. He is denying himself. He is practicing this. And he is preaching this message of being saved by grace through faith in Jesus. That's the grace of the gospel. That's God's riches at Christ's expense that we get to experience. And when people begin to understand this, and going back to my comment about the goodness, what's beautiful is the have-tos become get-tos. And so when we are going and opening up our Bible because it's drudgery and i got to read Leviticus, oh my Lord, i got to read through Leviticus again this year and it's so hard to get through it. Lord, do I really have to read this in order to, to be your son? The answer is no, you don't. He loved you even before you ever read Leviticus. You don't have to read that. But when we begin to understand the gospel of grace, and what he did for us, then reading Leviticus or reading Deuteronomy, oh, it's not drudgery anymore. It becomes beautiful. I wonder what Jesus is going to show me about how much he loves me in Leviticus today. And now it begins to become a get-to, and it's no longer a have-to. And I want to encourage you guys to get there in your relationship with Christ because when the get-tos, when the have-tos become get-tos, we then realize that this book in our hand is no longer a reference manual, that every problem I have, I just flip through the concordance and I find where that word is and I look it up, but it becomes a love letter. 
Jesus Christ on every single page and how much he loves me through even every one of the sacrifices that he performed on my behalf. Now, verse 25, And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone, preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Paul makes it clear to these guys, you're not going to see me again. This is the last time we're going to be together. Holy Spirit's given him an indication. He's not going to come back. He's not going to see them again in this life. Now, verse 26, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. So Paul makes this bold statement that I, I am not got the blood of any man on me any longer. I've been cleaned up by Jesus. And he, and he lays this out there and he says, how do I know this? Well, I have not stopped to give you the entire counsel of God. The whole counsel I have taught you in my time with you. And so when we go through the Bible, verse by verse, line upon line, what at least my desire is, is to share with you the whole counsel of God that I don't want to stand before uh, my Heavenly Father and say that at any point in time I did not share with you the entirety of Scripture. Now, would it be easier sometimes to not uh, share with you certain parts? Yes, absolutely. It would be way more enjoyable. There are sections in Scripture we get to, we've already experienced as a family together, where it's just downright awkward. Like I, I, but here's it's the Word of God, and it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And so uh, in loving you enough, I want to make sure you are exposed to this. I want to make sure we cover even the uncomfortable parts together. And here's the beautiful thing about what we do. Uh, I've encouraged you this before. Um, if you're not comfortable with the subject matter, uh, you know where I'm going next week, <laughs> you know. I mean, here's the thing. It's on you because you didn't read ahead. So if at any point you're uncomfortable, you could have just read ahead for next week. But the thing is, um, in Learning and studying through the Word of God together, what we're doing is we're creating a balanced uh, Christian. This is a full meal. It's a spiritual buffet, and it's the perfect balance of encouragement and exhortation, right? There's plenty of encouragement in Scripture, and we all love encouragement. There's also plenty of uh, exhortation. That's the heavenly kick in the pants. That's what we all need every now and again. I, I had a boss say one time that no one ever improves from a compliment. Now, that's a little harsh. Um, but the reality is, uh, most of the time, it's true in my life. Like the hardest things that have ever been told to me are the things that have grown me the most. And so when we skip over entire sections of Scripture because it's awkward and uncomfortable and we don't want to talk about it, it's really a missed opportunity for growth for the both of us. And so Paul's saying here, I, I, I taught you the whole counsel of God. Verse 28, Therefore, he says, Take heed of your flocks. And so Paul's going to give them some lessons in leadership going forward, and he's going to start by telling them uh, as a leader, and by the way, each of you is a leader in some area that are in here. You're either a leader in people that you get to interact with in school, or you're a leader in your family, or you're a leader in your work, you're a leader in your marriage relationship. You all are leaders of someone in some way. And the first role in leadership that Paul gives is take heed of yourselves. How are we to take heed of ourselves? That sounds like I'm being selfish. No, it's not. This is taking heed of your one-on-one -on -one personal relationship with Jesus first. That is so vitally important as a leader, is to take care of this relationship with him. 
Make sure you're in the Word. Make sure you're praying and studying through what God has to say for you. This is also a way that we can stay humble. (laughs) When you study His Word regularly, it's amazing how uh, humbling it actually is, right? When we go through Scripture, we read things about His great love for us, and we really reflect upon where we're at. It's humbling for us. And so his first instruction for a leader is take heed of yourselves. And the second piece here in verse 28 is and to all the flock. So it's first uh, we are to maintain our Jesus and then to take heed of the flock. And this is the way the relationship flows. It's us receiving word from him and then allowing that to flow out to others. Jesus promised to have torrents of living water to flow through us. And any time we have torrents of living water, it allows life to splash out on those around us. I've shared with you this example before, but you don't want to operate as the Dead Sea. In Israel, the Dead Sea has a freshwater flowing influence of the Jordan River. It comes into the Dead Sea, and yet the reason it is dead is because it has no outlet. It has no outlet in the Dead Sea, and so therefore nothing can live. Nothing around it, it's dead all around it. And so we don't want to operate as the Dead Sea, but instead we want to be flowing with living water that comes from this relationship and then out to the flock all around us. Then the next part is we are called to feed the flock. For the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. We are called to actually shepherd those around us to make sure they are well taken care of, to be protected, and to be fed properly. And the reality is, for us, is that healthy sheep reproduce healthy sheep. So if we want to have healthy relationships and healthy people around us, we need to be giving them really good sheep food. We need to be giving them a meal of the Word of God to share that into their lives. And so healthy sheep will reproduce other healthy sheep. And so when we look at the church in America and the spot that we're in, especially through this last season of COVID, what we find is churches drying up and dying all over the place. And I've seen it in the news and in the media over and over again that COVID has killed churches. I want to tell you that that's completely false. COVID didn't kill any church. Malnutrition did. The sheep weren't being fed any kind of proper food. And so churches that I have been involved with and experienced that have come through on the other side of COVID that were feeding sheep, they were actually giving the full... uh, counsel of God, giving the meat of the word of God, they have come through this season just fine. In fact, uh, our church, our home church in Farmington added a whole new sanctuary, right? 400 people can fit in there now because of the word of God, and they did it during COVID. Amazingly, the Lord even paid for the whole doggone thing. It's amazing uh, when the sheep are fed, how they'll reproduce other healthy sheep. And then finally, lastly, at the end of this verse, uh, Paul says, as you shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Remember how very precious you are to him and to those around you, how very precious the church is, this gathering of the saints, so much so that he purchased it with his own blood. And what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, was that knowing that we were not redeemed or purchased back with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish or without spot. You were purchased with the precious blood 
of Christ. Be mindful of that. Remember that. This is the price that he paid. So much so that he actually stepped in our place. He took our sin nature upon himself so that we could have robes of righteousness. What a beautiful thing. And what 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says is that he became our propitiation. That's a big word that just means payment that turned away wrath. And that word, when you transliterate it back into the Hebrew, it's the same word as mercy seat. So when you think about the, the altar, the actual Ark of the Covenant that had the mercy seat on top of it that they sprinkled the blood of the Lamb on top of during Yom Kippur to atone for sin, this is what John's saying is uh, the blood of the Lamb, that was Jesus. And even just as beautifully, the mercy seat, that was Jesus. He provided the payment and he provided the atonement all at the same time. Precious gift. Now, Paul's going to go on here in verse 29 to say, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. And so what, as Paul's sharing about how to tend to your flock, the very next thing he mentions is there are going to be wolves. They're going to come in and try to feed on them. And what a wolf always looks to do is feed on the sheep rather than feed the sheep. And I read this week that the only visible difference between a, a sheep and a wolf dressed in sheep's clothing is the diet. <laughs> There's a big-time dietary difference. And so we see Paul giving warning to this. Therefore, he says in verse 31, Watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. And so Paul's encouragement to them is be watchful. Keep an eye on things. What Peter says is we are to keep an eye out because the devil walks around like a roaring lion seeking to devour you. This is why we're to be watchful. Not only you, but people you care about. And when we only feed and we don't watch our sheep, we are really just fattening them up to be a better meal for the enemy. And so we want to be watchful. But how do we do this? Especially when Jesus says in Matthew, we're to judge not lest ye be judged. And I don't really want to be judged all that bad, so I want to be careful about judgment. What Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 7 is that we are called to be fruit inspectors. We are called to look at a tree, and he says if a tree bears bad fruit, it's a bad tree. Because there's no good tree that bears bad fruit. And likewise, there's no bad tree that bears good fruit. And so when we come into contact with people and we have this Holy Spirit suspicion in us, we're not called to be judges, but I am called to get right up in there and check out the fruit that's coming off of that tree. Is this tree a good tree or not? You can tell, but you can't unless you examine the fruit of what's taking place. Now, verse 32, Paul says, So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all all those who are being sanctified. And so Paul says you're to trust in the Lord and trust in his grace. Trust that he's going to save and he's going to deliver. And here's the thing. As you endure things, he has also given you a promise of an inheritance. What a beautiful thing. Who doesn't want a promise of an awesome, heavenly, eternal inheritance? It's tremendous. And so this is what Paul's saying. And you've been sanctified. You've been set apart for a work that is far greater than ourselves. And so when we look a little different, and we talk a little different, different and, and people just think, man, you're, you seem like you're, you're so set apart. You say, praise the Lord. 
I have been. I've been sanctified. I've been pulled out of the fire. I've been set apart for a purpose and a calling. And so this is why I, I'm a little bit different than maybe the person you used to know. Now, verse 33, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. And so Paul's reminding them, look, I didn't covet anything. Uh, covetousness is wanting something that is not yours. It's different than jealousy. We are told in the Old Testament that our God is a jealous God. Jealousy is wanting something back that used to belong to you. God wants us back. He is jealous over us because he wants to have us back with him. But it is a sin to be covetous, which is wanting something that is not yours. And I believe Paul brings this up specifically because Romans chapter 7, what Paul tells us is uh, he struggled with being covetous. He struggled in his previous life with covetousness. It was hard. He looked at what other people had, and he wanted it. And so he's saying, look, where I'm at right now, I no longer covet what is not mine. I don't, I don't worry about that at all. And in verse 34, he says, yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for all my necessities and for all those who are with me. So what Paul came to realize in his life was that uh, he had actually healed from this covetousness because God showed him he could provide for himself. He could provide for himself because God was giving him everything that he needed. Everything he needed to have, whatever, uh, whatever goods, whatever you know, place to sleep, clothes on his back, he had all that he needed. God had given it to him. And what Paul would write to Timothy in 1 Timothy, which I think is valuable for us, is that godliness with contentment is great gain. Everything this world tells us to do is to go after more and more and more. And the thing is, it's never enough. We end up coveting what our neighbor has and coveting what our boss has, and yet it's never enough. And Paul says, look, if you're just godly and you're content with what he's given you, you're going to be richer than anybody you know. You're going to have tremendous amount of gain in that spot. Now, finally, as we head down the home stretch, before anybody falls out a window, uh, verse 35, For I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak, And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So Paul now quoting something from Jesus, which by the way, for you Bible students, uh, you will not find that line anywhere in the gospel. And that's caused people to be tripped up over the years. And yet remember, this was written just 30 years after the crucifixion of Christ. And so there were lots of sayings that were known of Jesus and like John's gospel, if every saying of Jesus were written down and everything he did, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain it. And so this is one of those sayings that Jesus apparently taught, but wasn't recorded in the gospels. But Paul, writing it down here, says that the Lord said it was more blessed to give than to receive. And what you find is that the cure for covetousness is giving. That being gracious and giving with our finances with our time with our resources is the cure for being covetous and so when we come to this spot in scripture speaking of things that make me uncomfortable it's uh, tithing i don't like to talk about it i don't enjoy sharing with you guys because it creeps me out but yet uh, it is very valuable for us to have this conversation because it's right here in the text and so what tithing does is it reminds me uh, who's in first Why should we tithe? It's a reminder that it was all God's in the first place. It was all his. Whatever you have, it was his to begin with. And by the way, when I don't share, when we don't talk about this in a scriptural way, what I'm actually doing 
as your pastor very selfishly is robbing you of a blessing. I'm robbing you of being blessed by what the Lord has in store for you uh, by tithing. If you go in the Old Testament and actually throughout all of Scripture, what you'll find is uh, only one place does the Lord say, uh, test me on this, try me on this. It's in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. It's referring to tithing. The Lord says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now on this, says the Lord. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be enough room to receive it. Test me on this. Try me. Try me that if you give to me just what little bit I'm asking for, if you show me that I'm number one in your life with your finances and see that I will not pour out such a blessing that you won't be able to contain it. Now, that verse has been used and abused by people that preach the uh, name it and claim it, uh, you know, wealth gospel out there. But what Jesus is really trying to do is he's trying to home back in on this relationship that says that if I hold on too tightly with my money, I'm going to hold on tightly with my trust. The real issue for us is one of trust. Do I trust him enough that if I give to him, he's going to take care of me? Do I trust him? And so for me, I can tell you personally, for years and years, uh, I was not trusting. We went to church. I sat there in the pew or in the comfy seat, and I would uh, act like I was singing when I was really just mumbling and mouthing around, and I would sit next to my wife like a good boy, and I would struggle mightily because I did not trust the Lord. Why does God always need money? It's obvious he's not good with it. He clearly has a money problem all the time. He needs more and more and more. I'm helping the Lord out by not giving to him. I mean, I had every stupid excuse you could think of to not give to the Lord. And when I finally came to know Christ, what I discovered was this is one of the most awesome acts of intimate worship you can have with the Lord, is trusting him in this, to give to him, and to have that kind of a worship setting. And one of the things that we were taught was 2 Corinthians 9, 7. I've shared this with you before, that God loves a cheerful giver. He loves it when you give no matter what, but what he really loves is cheerfully giving. That word cheerful is the same word, hilarious. That means when we drop the money in the box and we give, we should be able to throw our head back and just, hoo-hoo-hoo! Man, Lord, you are so good to me. Yeah. That's the kind of giving God wants. And if we can't give like that, I got to tell you, this is maybe the dumbest thing a pastor would ever say, but I tell you, if you can't give like that, don't bother. God doesn't need it. He's not looking for your money. He's looking for your heart. That's the thing he's most concerned about. And so giving hilariously, joyfully, and I got to tell you that when I fun to this and could give to him hilariously, we also, because it turns out when you own your own business, uh, sometimes you do really well and sometimes you don't do so well. And there was a season when we were in Farmington where for several months we had uh, zero income. And by the way, for you math whizzes, um, zero times 10% is zero, which meant that for a guy who was too stingy to give, I didn't want to give. I, I held close to things that when I finally was able to and then to experience a season where it was taken away, uh, it was heartbreaking. Isn't that amazing how it changes in us? Where you go from not being willing to lay that down to then 
actually grieving the fact that that time of worship was gone, so much so that when it came back, man, I could not wait to be able to write a check for Jesus. Lord, thank you so much. It, it caused a tremendous amount of thankfulness because here's the thing. When you read this verse, what the Lord is saying is it is more blessed to give than to receive. It is better. And what he has in mind for you isn't just good. It's not just okay. It's better. It's better at every turn. What he desires for you is better. So, that's enough of my harangue on giving. Now, verse 36, And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with And then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, and sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, and they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. And so as Paul's getting ready to depart from these guys, he has to say a tearful goodbye, and they fall upon him. And when you think about how many times you've had to say goodbye to friends and to family, and maybe it's uh, sometimes a result of death, other times it's just a result of a season change. There's just times where you cannot be together anymore that hopefully for you that causes you to long for eternity. It causes a, a longing in your heart that I cannot wait for the time where I don't have to say goodbye anymore. And when I think about what Revelation says is we're going to get to experience this wedding supper of the Lamb, I am first of all excited about seeing King Jesus. He's going to be up there at the head of the table. I know that guy. I'm going to be excited. But the next thing to be excited for is all those goodbyes that don't have to be goodbyes anymore. All that time we get to spend with one another, and there's no more time clock. There's no more, i got to get home and get to bed. I'm tired. It's going to be a wonderful time of just fellowshipping. And so if you're coming through one of those seasons where you've had to say goodbye, I'm going to read to you as we close one of my favorite uh, psalms of David at the end of Psalm 27. David's heart, unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of, good, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. And so if you're in that season, we have this wonderful thing where we can wait upon him. We are going to have the opportunity to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. The wedding supper is on its way, and we're so very excited. In the meantime, we got work to do. There are people who need saved. There are people that the Lord has already pegged that he wants to see them come to know him, and we get the opportunity to be a part of that. And so, Heavenly Father, we thank you, and we praise you for your word. Thank you for the acts of the Holy Spirit and what Paul is experiencing and how it can connect to our lives, Lord. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to be able to give back to you. You have given us so freely, Lord. We are so very blessed to be where we are at. Lord, help us to be able to trust you in that. Lord, help us as we come through seasons of loss and separation and things that just make us mourn. We wish we could be back connected with this group of people or that group of people. Help us to have a, a reminder of what eternity holds and yet also a firm focus on the here and now. There are people right now that we get to focus on while we wait upon you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Would you please stand?
creation and all of the earth and make straight a highway a path for the Lord Jesus is coming soon Call back the sin Wake up the same let every nation shout of your fame. Jesus is coming soon. Like a bride waiting for her groom, we'll be a church ready for you. Every heart's longing for our King We sing, even so Lord Jesus, come Even so, come Lord Jesus, come There will be justice, all will be new, your name forever, faithful and true. Jesus is coming soon, like a bride waiting for her groom, will be a church ready for you every heart's longing for our king we sing even so come lord jesus come even so come lord jesus come So we wait, we wait for you, God, we wait, you're coming soon, so we wait, we wait for you. God, we wait, you're coming soon. Like a bride waiting for her doom, we'll be a church, we'll be ready for you. Every heart longing for our King, we
Jesus come. The church says, Amen. All right. Thank you, guys. I hope you have a wonderful week this week. I'll be praying for you as you continue to press in and uh, trust with what the Lord has for you. God bless.